My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Um, so for the dozens in attendance and the hundreds watching around the world, um, we enter our very, very sexy discussion of defense economics. And you may say, well, there are so many more interesting uh, subjects to be talking about today. But I'm told people keep recurringly telling me that there are more interesting subjects. But how we think about military power, how we think about international politics, turns in important ways on defense economics, right? So it's, we can talk about um, net assessments, we can talk about um, counting ships and tonnage and things of this nature, um, but if you've been paying attention to the debates about the U.S. defense budget, um, about really international politics at all, um, you've heard things like the United States spends as much on its military as the next nine or 10 or 11 countries combined, seven of which are treaty allies. But if that's not true, right, then we shouldn't be using that argument, right? So I, as a lowly politics and strategy person, came into this very commanding heights uh, uh, economics subject um, back in the heady days of 2007 when I saw an estimate of the PLA budget on the order of something like $450 billion, roughly equivalent to what the United States was spending in 2007. When, as you may recall, we had kind of a hot war uh, raging in Iraq at the time, and I thought to myself, you know, this was in an era when the conventional estimates of Chinese spending were something on the order of like $80 billion. And I thought to myself, how, how, are we, how do we have these just wildly divergent um, numbers for the Chinese budget? And oh, by the way, if that number is true and they're spending as much as we're spending, we're totally thinking about this problem the wrong way. Um, and so as I pushed and pushed these numbers, uh, I uncovered what you will be hearing ad nauseum this afternoon, which is that how we think about um, converting things that are denominated in Chinese currency to US dollars has hugely consequential implications for how we uh, uh, think about the Chinese military budget, right? So to reduce things, and, and I hope my co-panelists will, will do a better job than I'm doing right now of explaining this, to be very crude about it, right, what people used to do was to take Chinese defense expenditures, convert them to U.S. dollars at market exchange rates, right, so the, the exchange rates that take place in international markets when you're purchasing Chinese goods and services on markets, and say this is the number for the Chinese defense budget. And what became clear over time, not coincidentally, as the Chinese military budget was becoming larger and more complicated, was that market exchange rates were not capturing all of the different dynamics inherent in the Chinese military expenditures, right? And so the currency valuation itself was causing problems. So analysts began using so-called purchasing power parity conversion rates to convert the Chinese budget. But that arguably produced other problems in the other direction. So then analysts began slicing and dicing the different components of the Chinese military to say these aspects should be converted at market exchange rates, but these aspects should be converted with purchasing power parity. And so if I haven't bored you to sleep already, I'll try to reduce this to a simple fact, which is that one US dollar can purchase a different amount of labor, say, in the United States than it could in China, or a different amount of rice in the United States than it could in China. So things that are produced domestically in China tend to warrant purchasing power parity conversions, whereas things purchased on international markets, metals, high technology, things of this nature, tend to get market exchange rates. But again, how you slice and dice the Chinese budget has everything to do with what kind of number you come up with. We saw last week um, the, China, the DOD report on military and security developments involving the People's Republic of China put the number on the order of $261 billion, a pretty conservative, I think, um, figure. And then we have other estimates um, from defense economists that are pushing the number up closer and even beyond $600 billion today. So this is a really consequential debate about U.S.-China relations, about U.S. defense spending, um, that, yes, has to get into the wonky weeds um, on some defense uh, economics questions. So with that, what I'm going to do is introduce the panelists today in the order in which they'll speak. They'll each go for 10, 12, 15-ish minutes, if that jives with everyone's um, um, talks. 
and then I'll try to provoke them and sort of draw them together or apart on some of the things, dissonances or agreements that I hear in their remarks. And then we'll turn things over to a question and answer both for the people in attendance and for the people uh, watching out on the internet. Um, so the first presenter today is Eric Hagenbotham, who's a principal research scientist at MIT's Center for International Studies and a specialist in Asian security issues. Uh, before joining MIT, he was a senior political scientist at RAND, where he studied uh, China, Japan, and regional security issues in Asia. Before that, he was a senior fellow in Asian studies at CFR. He holds a degree from Swarthmore and earned his PhD in political science from MIT. There's a very MIT, a weird uh, connection with MIT and Cato that MIT may be squeamish about at times. Um, he's fluent in Chinese and Japanese and was a captain in the U.S. Army Reserve. The second panelist uh, today is Federico Bartels, who now is a consultant for Pantheon Integrated Solutions, but before that was a senior policy analyst for defense budgeting at the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Um, in that position, he conducted research on the U.S. defense budget and associated policies to include uh, the PLA budget. Uh, so he has direct experience looking at this problem um, at Heritage. Before joining Heritage, he was a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, and before that, he worked as a policy analyst at Concerned Veterans for America. He holds a Master of Arts degree in International Affairs with a concentration in U.S. foreign policy from GW's Elliott School of International Affairs and received a Bachelor uh, of Arts degree from, I'm gonna butcher the Portuguese here, I'm sorry, um, Pontificia Universidade Católica de Minas Gerais in Brazil. I, if you say it fast <laughs> enough, no one pays attention, in Brazil. Um, so with that, I'm gonna turn things over to Eric Hagenbotham. Great, thanks a lot, Justin. And uh, I think you know, you've summed up the problem more eloquently than I am going to, but uh, I'm delighted to be here. It's been decades, and I won't say how many since the last time I did a, a Cato event. So uh, very happy to be with you. Uh, just a couple of points, maybe in terms of throat clearing. First, I'd just say before addressing budgets, I, I will say China is clearly modernizing its military and does present challenges to regional states. And uh, you know, if the U.S. wishes to defend its allies and partners in the region, also to the United States. So I'll leave grand strategy for another day. We can debate that as well. Um, but that's where I am coming from anyway. So I guess I would go back to uh, an article title that Tom Christensen published in 2001: "China Can Cause Problems Without Causing uh, Without Catching Up." Um, all right. That said. Budgets, uh, you know, budgets are inputs, uh, uh, not outputs. The outputs are what we should really care about, capabilities, right? So again, another part of throat clearing, I guess. It is an aside, but I think as we go forward, we ought to keep in mind, you know, what are the, what's actually being produced here um, and how capable is it? So that said, budgets are an important indicator of the input side of the equation and do help us understand uh, capabilities or at least how capabilities are generated. And as Justin said, there is a surprising range out there of, uh, of opinions that have been expressed about how we should think about uh, Chinese budgets and the value of Chinese budgets. So according to market exchange rates, uh, China's 2022 official defense budget was roughly uh, $225 billion, or about 29% of the U.S. budget, um, which is something on the order of uh, 715. I'll, I'll get to that. Um, but again, we have these ranges that Justin mentioned. I won't go through them again, but uh, you know, estimates that range up to and including something close to what the U.S. spends on defense. Uh, those estimates are derived from methodologies that have been around for decades. I thought had been debunked, but continue to manifest themselves in new ways. And the estimates, I think the, the latest estimates really derive largely from one individual's work, um, an Australian uh, economist, um, Robertson. Uh, but those estimates get cited in places like The Economist. They get cited by congressmen. They have been cited by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who again suggested China's spending was something close to what the US spent. Uh, George Gilboy and I, a colleague at MIT, did some work on Chinese and Indian military budgets back in 2012 um, and published that as a separate chapter there. Uh, we've updated a portion of that work. I'll kind of speak from that document. The updating is a work in progress, so if you'll be patient for a bit. 
There are two distinct parts of the problem, again, which Justin outlined well. First is sort of what should be included when we talk about a defense budget, what portions of the budget. And the second is how do we think about comparing uh, spending in local currency across countries? So what's the appropriate exchange rate? Both of these are obviously inherently comparative. Um, I'll cut right to the chase and say that, at least in my view, there's a lot of room for debate about both of these issues. Uh, about how we should value uh, the respective military budgets, but any estimate that says the budgets are approaching parity just isn't grounded in reality. So those estimates, I think, tend to uh, derive from two errors. The first is that additional categories of military-related spending are added to the Chinese budget, but not to the U.S. budget, right? And the second is that then... Um, an unrealistic or inappropriate purchasing power parity multiplier or exchange rate is then applied to the entire Chinese budget. I'll handle those uh, in order. Okay, first question, what should be included in military spending? Again, there's no perfect solution. The closest thing we have to an international standard is the NATO standard, which was really developed to uh, muscle our NATO uh, allies into spending more, right? We needed a standard definition of defense spending for that. But even that doesn't mean that the national governments of NATO define their own military spending uh, that way in their own national documents. They simply submit the NATO equivalent to NATO. Um, as far as I can tell, there's no nation that includes all military-related spending in its MOD or DOD budgets, and that absolutely includes the United States. In the case of China, it's possible to find military-related uh, or military-relevant budget items that are also in the national budget but not counted as part of the military budget itself. So these are items where transparency itself isn't necessarily the issue, although it's hard to dig farther down into those budgets, uh, but where it's not included in the defense budget. So in 2012, at least, those items included military family, compensation, and pensions. I think I've got this on a slide somewhere. Ah, wrong button. There we are. Okay, so uh, military family compensation and pensions, people's armed police, local support to the people's armed police and to the militia. And then there are more difficult categories um, where uh, you might be able to ascertain a range of figures for additional off-budget items, additional items that are not included in the military budget, but portions of which might be military might be related to, to military capabilities. So parts of the R&D effort, the government R&D effort um, that may be dual use, subsidies to potential dual use industries, arms imports, and arms sales profits in the case of China also were not included in the defense budgets. So in 2012, we estimated that all those put together amounted to roughly 44% of the Chinese budget. Um, uh, at that time, we, again, we were comparing China and India, so we did the same exercise for India. It turned out that uh, India's off-budget items, including those same categories for both, came out to about 43% of uh, the formal or official Indian uh, MOD budget, so a, a very consistent sort of figure. Now, I know you didn't tune in for the 2012 numbers. Um, I haven't updated them for 2022, but other organizations have. So CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, which has singled China out for this treatment, but not all the other governments, uh, seems to suggest in its 2021 figures that a notional budget would be about 48% higher than the official defense budget, so just a little bit higher than our 44% estimate from 2012. And if that ratio held in 2022, the following year, um, then the budget in mar market exchange terms would be about 330 billion compared to that, that official budget of 225 billion. Uh, but if you're going to go there, my argument would be you have to compare that to a full uh, notional US defense budget, not to the base Pentagon budget. So if you look at US, um, the US budgets, uh, again, I've not done a full parallel accounting for the United States, but just put down some top line figures here. In 2022, the DOD base budget was 715 billion. 
the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, adds in a couple of other categories to include the nuclear aspects of the Department of Energy uh, and a few other tidbits. But that number still doesn't include a lot of other uh, elements that are clearly defense related, like the veteran, Department of Veterans Affairs, which is $113 billion on its own. Um, Department of Homeland Security, maybe a little bit more tenuously related, but if you're gonna include the People's Armed Police in China, why not? Um, national intelligence programs, which I think are very directly uh, related. Um, you know, these include the NSA, and the NSA is much larger, much more capable than Cybercom in the military. Those folks, the commanders of both, that's a dual-hatted individual who commands both of those organizations, and I would bet this month's salary that if it came down to war, those folks would be sitting side by side and conducting operations. So anyways, if you're going to do this for China, my argument would be uh, we should do it for both sides. You would want to include the same categories or the same types of items for both countries, which I have not done here. Um, but the other thing you would want to do is make sure that when you create that like basket of categories, that you're capturing the big items from both, that you're not just capturing the important items from one and then doing the parallel for the other. So just to bring this out, the paramilitary in the case of China is going to be much more important than the paramilitary for the United States. On the other hand, again, although, yeah, we could debate that, but um, important in different ways. But, um, uh, but on the U.S. side, the non-DOD intel budgets are, are vastly more important than they will be in the, in the Chinese case, where much more of the intelligence apparatus is within that military organization. All right, I'm going on uh, too long. I'll just briefly turn to the other issue, which is purchasing power parity or the exchange rate. Um, and this is really the fun part uh, of assessing you know, comparative metrics. Uh, the most obvious way of converting the two budgets would be by market exchange rate, right? At least where the market exchange rate is in wide use and there's not a black market that better reflects the relative value of currencies. But again, there is this sort of counter argument that purchasing power parity should be used instead. Um, purchasing power parity was developed as a tool for comparing economies where the price of goods at local currency, non-tradable goods, uh, didn't equal or could not be uh, converted according to a market exchange rate. Uh, so, you know, the classic case, Big Mac is cheaper in China. Um, uh, than it is in the United States when you use the market exchange rate. So if you're using the PPP conversion rates rather than the market exchange rate, that will inflate the apparent value of uh, military spending in developing states and deflate it in advanced economies. So not to be tongue-in-cheek here, but an another way of paraphrasing that argument would be in evaluating the, military, the value of military budgets, the economies of underdeveloped, technologically inferior states, which, by the way, also correlate to states in which there are higher levels of corruption, will outperform that same level of budget in an advanced economy, um, maybe especially in high-end uh, air and naval conflict. So obviously I don't mean that, but that, that is, I think, the, the, the flaw or problem in the argument. The initial purpose of purchasing power parity was to compare living standards and welfare. And so the basket of goods that they used to develop uh, PPP reflects consumption. So the World Bank, when it developed PPP, was very explicit on that point. So rice, concrete, socks, lumber, all those items are going to loom particularly large in PPP estimates of general GDP. It was not intended to assess relative hard power, and so the DIA, and I think we've heard now the, the DOD as a whole following suit, no longer use that methodology. In fact, uh, CIPRI the, is also quite explicit in addressing the issue. Uh, they say GDP-based PPP rates are of limited relevance for the conversion of military expenditure data into U.S. dollars. They're designed to reflect the purchasing power for goods and services that are representative of spending patterns in each country that is primarily civilian goods and services, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Um, again, as in the case of sort of off-budget 
uh, items in the military budget, there's really no right answer uh, in terms of how you should convert uh, currencies. But I would argue there's some answers that are more wrong than others. Um, and unless we really think people are going to beat us to death with socks filled with rice or concrete, um, the overall GDP purchasing power parity rate is not a great one to use. Um, back in 2012, again, to sort of give the argument its due, George Gilboy and I developed what we called a military, militarily relevant or appropriate PPP to evaluate and compare military budgets. Um, the World Bank does provide sector-level PPP estimates for different parts of the economy, and we applied those to different parts of the defense budget. So it turns out, again, poorer countries can purchase rice and socks more cheaply than uh, you know, folks in the U.S. can, but when they have to rely on domestic means for the purchase of jet engines or advanced electronics or even trucks, they actually pay more. They pay more than we would in the United States. Um, okay, so we, I'll cut to the chase here. We um, took the different components of China's military budget, and they do file paperwork with the United Nations on a regular basis that uh, at least divides their military budget into three categories, personnel, training and maintenance, and equipment. And we applied different uh, sector-level sector uh, PPP conversion rates uh, to each of those sectors. For personnel, we applied the individual consumption PPP, uh, since we're dealing with humans and things that support them. For equipment, uh, we applied the machinery uh, PPP, which is actually 30% worse than the market exchange rate for China today. And for, mark and for training and maintenance, we employed a mix that is one third of the way from uh, individual consumption to machinery, or about 12% better than the market exchange rate. Overall, these figures uh, uh, then value military spending at a level that's about 11% higher than what the market exchange rate would be. Um, so uh, taking that official, sorry, that's my timer. <laughs> Spent too much time already, so so I'll just close on the, you know, if you if you multiply, um, you mentioned a lot of the things that I wanted to mention. <laughs> okay, all right, so we're saving some time here, uh, maybe. Although you're probably going to disagree with them, but um, so if you take the official defense budget and multiply it by that military PPP, you would get uh, 249 billion, as opposed to 224. And if you took that larger um, the larger, uh, hang on, I think my next slide has it. If you took the larger um, Chinese budget, including off-budget items, and then multiplied it by this military PPP, you would get a figure closer to 370 billion. But again, I put it there in red and caps at the bottom of the slide. <laughs> if you're gonna do that, you really, really have to compare it to the whole uh, US budget. Now, I hope we can talk more about PPP and the many issues associated with it, but I will stop there. Thank you. Sorry for going on so long. Thanks, Eric. Fred, bring some more juicy details to this discussion, <laughs> if you will. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Cato for convening this event. It, it is a very important topic, and it's hard to find people that are willing to talk and challenge the numbers that you put. And that was one of my frustrations when I was doing this work at the Heritage Foundation, I would send drafts out and I would get very little feedback. Uh, even when I tried to reach out to CIPRI and IISS, I would get very little feedback on how they're doing. Uh, and when you call the U.S. government to say, like, oh, can you tell me, like, what is the methodology that you go over to decide the, to, to have your number on the Chinese defense budget that you mentioned, Justin? No. <laughs> a, a little bit? Can you tell me what's included? No. Okay. Uh, and, and that was one of my big frustrations with this topic. It, 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 and that's why I think that this forum is so valuable in, in that sense. Um, and then I skipped the introduction on that point. Uh, my name is Fred Bartos, <laughs> and I currently work as a consultant uh, at Pantheon Integrated Solutions, but the majority of this work was developed uh, while I was a budget analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, one thing that I want to touch uh, that Eric brought up a little bit, but 
uh, I feel it, it's worth uh, highlighting is that it's nearly impossible that two countries will define their defense budget on the same terms. Uh, there will be things that they consider that they're, even if it is just because their societies consider different things within different terms and, uh, or, or even that just have different names. And that's why NATO, for instance, has a guideline of 2% of GDP and then 20% of that has to be dedicated to equipment. So there is some granularity there and some, some portion to push. So even if you pick up the top line for the US and you compare it to the UK, uh, it's not going to be apples to apples. It's going to be apples to bananas. Uh, and, and the problem starts building up when you compare that to China because then it's not going to be apples to bananas. It's probably going to be apples to, I don't know, chicken. Uh, and that's part of the problem that Eric laid out very well. And, and one thing that I'll get to the the headline element of my uh, difference of the work that I did to the work that, that you did, Eric, I did the opposite. Instead of trying to account for everything that China, that, that could be labeled as military within the Chinese budget, I stripped down the US budget to only the elements that China explicitly reports on. Uh, and yeah, that builds, and every time I've thought about this work in broader terms, I think that you're building something on top of a very fragile foundation, which is self-reported uh, PLA da data that the CCP sends over to the UN. And I would quibble with your point of regularly. Uh, if you send something in, in 17, uh, and then you send something else in 22, and the other gaps that you have there, you have like three other data points in the 10 years before 17, since they started that instrument, that, that's, it. Sure, it's a self-reporting instrument that most nations will blow off because, well, it's a UN military expenditure database. Right? It, there's probably, I don't know, 50 people in the world that look at that outside the UN. It's all outside the people they are maintaining and laboring on that database. There's probably very little. Uh, so I always thought of this as being a grain of salt that you add another grain of salt and, and you're going to end up with a lot of caveats, uh, which is why I really like where you started, which is the, that the Chinese the military has been becoming more capable and they have been dedicating more resources to the PLA. The, those are the, the ground facts that people can, like independent if that costs one trillion yuan or one trillion dollars, uh, their military has modernized, has increased, and it is consuming a bigger portion of their societal resources, which is where I think it, it's one element of, of why this is a relevant discussion. It's not just how much things cost, but also what is the societal burden of keeping that military and having that level of both modernization and capability and capacity within your military. Uh, the bigger challenge when you're converting anything is going to be how you deal with the currency. That, that's uh, a given. That's why I, I thought that there was a lot more concurrency of with what I wanted to share today and what you're saying. That's why I incentivized you to keep going over your time. <laughs> that's completely fine. Uh, one thing that is interesting is that, as Eric showed on his uh, PowerPoint, uh, the CCP releases three data points on uh, training, uh, personnel, and equipment. Uh, just the sheer level of transparency the, the US has, just so you all are aware, because that's what I was doing and kind of am still doing. Uh, the US releases seven different categories based on two different appropriations bill, and that is split between three military departments and five military services. And you can get that granular information in a completely different level. Uh, I would never expect the CCP to have anything close to the, that level of transparency, or in fairness, most countries do not have that level of transparency. Uh, even if you look at UK defense budget data, is not going to be that deep, as detailed as we do here with the, the P forms, with the budget justification books. Uh, if you want to see how much the US is planning on spending on F-35, on 2028, you can 
go to the, the comptroller's website and find that information. That, that is very different from anyone else. Uh, the, the other note that I want to add is on both IISS and CIPRI. Uh, both of them redid their methodologies recently. Uh, one report from IISS is from 2020, the CIPRI is from 2021, because it, it is an added relevance of the issue of, of how China has acted abroad. Um, when it comes to the work that I did at Heritage, one thing that I want to highlight, the bigger challenge that I had there and, and the bigger difference between my work and everyone else's work was on adjusting for labor. I used labor costs in China and I made them similarly equivalent to how much it would take for the US to pay the same amount of people. That's why my number is was very different and that's why my idea was also how how analogous to, if China had a, a military that was kind of close to the US and, and costed kind of close to the US, how much would they been paying? And that's why I get to the 87% number, which is close to the number that you mentioned for um, Peter Robertson uh, in Australia, which I think it's a very valid effort. The, the, the question there is always like, how do you, refine the methodology and what do you change and what you don't change. And that is the, the, the debate that is not going to go away and it underscores the, the whole discussion here. And one thing that I got into through this research is the, the willingness to just to, to being wrong because that's what's likely going to happen. Like you develop one methodology in one way and there are always, it is always going to be open to criticisms and valid criticisms on that matter, both because of the subject and because of the general lack of transparency that the CCP has with data. Because if you're going to trust that what the numbers that they announce are the actual numbers that they are dedicating to that PLA, I got a COVID zero policy that I want to sell you and a bridge to Brooklyn as well. <laughs> but the important thing here is of understanding how, what they release and what is the information that we have and how, what are the different ways that, that we can manipulate that data. And that, that all goes back, the, the, the last thing that, that I want to say before opening up to questions is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if their missile costs 10 million or 10,000, the important thing is what are the effects and how the, those those capabilities change deterrence in, both in the region and in the world. And with that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> the thing speaks for itself. Yeah, there, there is a certain, I think, unanimity on, on that point is what, what matters um, is what we see out in the world and how the Chinese uh, and the United States use their respective capabilities out in the world. Um, before we throw things open to questions and answers from the audience, I want to try to ask the same question of both panelists in a different way, right? Um, Fred had alluded to this idea that um, you know the PLA spend something on the order of 87% equivalent of what the United States spends, and so I'll ask you know a sort of question about that idea in different ways to the different panelists. Like to Fred, if we just started the discussion with the idea that the PLA spends 87% of what the U.S. spends, my first reaction would be to ask where all the stuff is. Right, so it seems to me that a lot of getting from Who's the, stuff? our stuff or their stuff, the idea that the PLA has eighty-seven percent the military capability the United States has, or spends spends eighty-seven percent as much as the United States has, the question becomes where's all the Chinese stuff, right? Because I can point to aircraft carriers and say we get a lot of carriers, um, and we have to pay for O and M for those carriers. Mm -hmm. And so if the Chinese were spending 87% of what we're spending and they don't have all the O&M, the operations and maintenance for stuff that they don't yet have, then there should presumably be just enormous research and development, procurement that presumably we would see to instantiate that idea. And so what would be, you know, again, if we sort of started the discussion at the end and somebody says, well, wait a minute, where's all where the Chinese materiel, 
what would be your response to that question? And to ask the question a little bit differently to Eric, right? One other thing that I alluded to having to do with, you know, this kind of modernization that's going on with the PLA is to be really crude, as I've been the whole morning or afternoon, um, the sort of shift from labor to capital in the PLA, modernization, right? The idea that they are moving from what 30 or 40 years ago was an enormous human center, it was focused on mass, right? There was a certain, I hate this phrase, and I hate when people at think tanks say it, quantity has a quality, all of it, so, right? There was just a lot of people involved uh, in the PLA, and over time, the number of people has gone down relatively, and the amount of stuff has gone up relatively. And that has implications for how we evaluate the PLA effort in US dollars, because if the amount of people that they're paying is going down and the amount of fancy stuff that they're buying is going up, then how we score purchasing power parity versus market exchange rates would change as those facts change. So the different variations on the question, where's all the stuff and what is China spending on? Yeah. Uh, I'll start then. Uh, the stuff is getting built. Uh, it, it takes time. Like China hasn't been spending 90% of, of what, like the equivalent of 90% of what we spent for the last 20 years. It, it has been doing that probably for the, the, the last five or last 10. It depends on which metric do you want to take. And, and that goes to, uh, that goes a little bit beyond my specific knowledge and Eric might be able to complement there as well. Uh, since 2015, they started modernizing their forces and that marks the transition that you mentioned of moving away from just labor intensive to more capital intensive. Uh, but those things take time. Like it, it doesn't, uh, a submarine gets built in around eight years. Uh, an aircraft carrier takes a, a bit longer than that. Uh, you might be able to to get other hardware faster, uh, but the development cycle is going to take time, even if you're stealing most of that stuff, because you need to learn how the the IP that you stole actually works for you to be able to build it. And, and one thing that you have seen recently is the multiple iterations of their fifth generation aircraft. Uh, you've seen rapid iteration on that, where they are learning how to to operate and what are the elements that work and don't work. But my headline answer to, to your question would be that it takes time to develop that stuff. Uh, there And some of that money is probably in man-made artificial islands in the South China Sea that they have built recently. Some of that is in uh, aerial denial, anti-access area denial uh, weaponry that they have. Some of it is in the missile force that it is fairly new. Some of it is in the nuclear development that we recently uh, highlighted and that China has been going through a tremendous amount of both developing new nuclear weapons and building new nuclear weapons and, and having that silo. So there is a lot of new stuff that, that they bought recently. On that, uh, if you combine both, like it takes time for you to develop new things and with all the new stuff that they have actually showed already, I, I think there is a lot of resources that were clearly allocated to the PLA. Uh, if it is the, the same amount that, that we do, uh, how long does it take? That, that's, those are different questions. Right. But just because they don't have 11 aircraft carriers, that doesn't mean that they don't have a few unsinkable aircraft carriers in the South China Sea and man-made islands. Eric, thoughts on implications, impl implications of modernization for these questions and sort of the broader uh, debate? Right. So these are great questions, and I'll cheat a little bit and <laughs> go to the other question as well. But, but back in 2012, when we first took this on, I mean, part of our motivation was already people were saying that China had kind of sort of caught up to the U.S. in military spending or in the value of military spending. So. It, the argument is not entirely new, and I would sort of footstomp the where, where, where the goods. Um, so, right, on carriers, we have 11 very large carriers and 11 more amphibious assault ships, which equate to small carriers. China has just launched its third small carrier. So, you know, the, the, these numbers just don't quite compute. They're not nearly um, equal. 
you know, U.S. support capability, not the sexiest thing, but we have in the Guard, Reserve, and Active Forces, we have something like almost 500 aerial refueling tankers. China, I think, has a dozen or maybe headed towards two dozen, something like that. So if you look at these militaries, they are not at all comparable just in terms of how much stuff they have. I, I should back up a moment and say Fred is absolutely right that, you know, China is allocating more resources to the problem. They are posing challenges. Geography is an issue. You have to look at uh, capabilities in the context of geography and the mission. So, you know, I'm not dismissive of the idea that we have, you know, a, a problem here or a potential problem, depending on how we think about it. Um, but I would contest the idea that, that these budgets are comparable, no matter how you think about them. So, okay, this shift from uh, labor to capital. It's ongoing. China is cutting the size of its military in terms of the number of personnel. It is obviously increasing the size of its Navy, the size of its Air Force. So again, not comparable to the US, but, but growing. And in some areas becoming comparable. So in the number of fighter aircraft, you know, moving towards 2000, the US in all its services has something like 3000. Many more of ours are fifth gen and much more capable. But uh, China has, you know, can put up good numbers. So that's an issue. Now, on this point about capital, um, I mean, part of that simply may reflect uh, the fact that those PPP numbers are converging on the market exchange, right? So when you have a very, very poor economy, you may want to generate more of your, you, you may get some extra leverage from manpower in the military. But the mission is also critically important, right? If you are fighting a a insurgency war in the jungle somewhere where you can't bring high-tech assets to bear, then manpower can be all important. And then I would say those PPP multipliers that are most relevant to manpower matter a lot. If, on the other hand, you would like to cross the Taiwan Straits and land on the other side, then you probably don't want to swim. So you're going to need a Navy and an Air Force. Now let's talk about what kind of value you get. So if you're China, then you do not have a world-beating aircraft engine industry. And I'm just picking one example here. This is one of the areas where they have you know, a very significant problem. The overwhelming share of the civilian aircraft engine industry, five firms, CFM International, a Franco-American JV, Pratt & Whitney, Rolls-Royce, GE, and, an, and uh, another uh, consortium firm, I think they make up something like 99% of the, of the global uh, commercial aircraft engine inventory. China has to make this all up from scratch and basically you know, create an aircraft engine inventory that is solely dedicated to the military. Now, of course, they would love to have a commercial, uh, commercially viable industry. They have not yet been able to do that. So, you know, again, they, they have to move towards greater capital intensity in terms of their military capabilities, but this is a, this is a difficult problem for them. And it's not just aircraft engines, it's lots of other areas, software, um, advanced electronics, et cetera. I'll stop, thanks. Great, let's um, now go to the audience, both online, that's why I'm looking down at my lap, um, and in here in the audience, um, I have, very severe unlibertarian instructions. Um, we're taking questions both online and in person. Um, if you're in person here, please speak clearly and directly into the microphone, which will be carried to you so that people here and online can hear your question and announce your name and affiliation. Um, we'll go first in the back there to my colleague, Eric Gomez, who doesn't need to introduce himself because I just introduced him. Thanks, Justin. And thanks for this presentation. Uh, so Eric Oma, senior fellow here at Cato. Um, so to, to sort of go a few levels down in the, in like, you know, this is a very interesting discussion to me because I'm also a big time China defense nerd, um, but the sort of political implications of this, right? And I think that oftentimes when you say the number is bigger than the number that is presented, it's used as part of a political debate, like Eric said earlier, right, that other people cite to kind of justify, well, this means the U.S. needs a lot more, right? And the U.S. budget needs to be higher or what have you. Um, I'm, I'm curious what the thought is on that, right? If the implication is that, let's say China is in fact closer to the 90% mark, does this mean therefore that the U.S. should have a higher budget? Should it, does it mean like the U.S. should think about what it spends differently. 
Um, curious about those sort of second order uh, questions uh, or what comes after. The so what question rears its ugly head. Uh, so right. what about these numbers? So what if it were? Uh... Right, right. Great point, Eric. <laughs> I've, I, and by the way, Eric and I have just finished a project together. So it's, it's terrific to see you here today. Um, uh, right, I mean, I think if we wanna talk about how much we should spend or need to spend to address this problem, right? First of all, it depends what we want to do. Do we want to defend our allies? Do we want to defend Taiwan? Do we want to have the capability to defend Taiwan, whether or not we've committed to it, et cetera? Once we've decided, you know, sort of what purposes uh, or what functions we want our military to feel, uh, to, 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 uh, to address, then obviously I think the way to look at this is not through military budgets and not even through apples to apples type comparisons of military hardware, right? It really doesn't matter, you know, how many warships we have and they have, as long as we can defeat the operation that we want to deter, right? Mm -hmm. So if China wants to invade Taiwan, we don't really need to bring destroyers off the Taiwanese coast. Uh, China, on the other hand, needs to put an amphibious fleet, a very large one, off the Taiwanese coast. They need to keep it there while they're landing troops. They need to keep it there while they're supplying troops. That is a huge land battle on Taiwan. So that's not something that even if they can get forces across is resolved in a matter of days. Every large island campaign in history has lasted at least, you know, five weeks to five months. If you look at these, if you go back to, I'm sorry, since World War II, but Luzon, um, Leyte, Okinawa, um, Sicily, if you look at all of these, they take a long time. Taiwan has an active duty army of 100,000. So, so that's what we need to be prepared to deter or defeat. And we have answers to that, that that rely largely on means other than a fleet similar in size to China's. We have a larger fleet than China's, but I'm not sure we necessarily would employ that in the operation. It's, it would be China's amphibious fleet, China's escorts versus US anti-ship missiles launched from bombers, land bases, um, submarines, and other assets. So it's relative military capabilities and their, you know, and their ability to, to conduct certain types of operations is I think the way to assess the US budget and how efficient and effective it is. Fred, what do you think implications-wise? Oh, I largely agree with Eric. Uh, the important thing when deciding the, the U.S. defense budget is not how much China spends, how much Russia spends, is what do we want to do? What do we want our forces? What is the current state of our forces? And what is the desired state of our forces? And what do we want to modernize versus what are we willing to, to let go? Uh, what are the priorities that we as a society have for our military? What are the expectations that we have for our military? And uh, in modern American history, the, the expectation is that the U.S. will not be involved in a fair fight that will go anywhere and crush everyone, right. which is a great expectation to have, but it's really hard to meet. Sure, it's really hard for for you to be the the yeah to be able to dominate any adversary possible. Uh, the question becomes then like, what are we? How much are we willing to invest, and how much are we willing? To, how much risk are we willing to take in the scenarios that we are likely to use our military? That's great. I have, for this is getting too interesting, I'm going to get it back down into the weeds of defense economics. We have two anonymous questions here offered online, and you may want to get the slide prompt handy because it may go back to your slides. Um, first anonymous question, why does Robertson's result differ so sharply from Eric's given that he applied a separate PP fee converter to each of the three components that Eric did? And as sort of attendant, I think we can probably take them both at the same time, anonymous question, why is the individual consumption PPP you use for personnel at four RMB per dollar higher than the PPP for GDP as a whole, 3.5 RMB per dollar in 2021? I would expect that while machinery is relatively expensive, as you say, military labor would be relatively cheap. So two wonky questions about uh, slicing the data, Eric. Those are great questions. And they are. That's yeah, those anonymous. Are. They should have put their name yeah, to those. Right, yeah. right, right. No, those are great questions. Um, I believe the uh, so George Gilboy and I and uh, Taylor Fravel we're, we're sort of embarking on a a 
a redo of our 2012 work. So we'll be unpackaging this in much more detail. Um, but I believe from my sort of first uh, glance at this, the overall GDP PPP um, uh, rate is 4.2, not uh, 3.5, at least from what I've seen. Why is Robertson so different? Um, again, I'm going to have to go into his work and sort of pull it apart and figure out what's going on there. But in part, I mean, he applies sort of the wage, uh, a wage PPP to everything in the Chinese military budget. And he applies a multiplier of 1.2, which is, I think he does that. It's pretty extreme. And I don't think corresponds at least to my understanding of how we would think about Chinese wages, among other things, uh, um, you know, it doesn't get at productivity, right? U.S. productivity is vastly higher than Chinese. Obviously, we'd want to look at the sector level, you know, and in, in assessing relative differences in productivity. Um, but one thing that I did do just briefly is I looked at, because we don't have to go to the civilian economy for all of our um, uh, um, data to assess military wages. I mean, we can go direct to the source and look at how much China pays for a sergeant. So a sergeant in the Chinese military system earns somewhere between 7,000 and 9,000 renminbi a month. That converts by the market exchange rate to somewhere between 1,100 to $1,400. A U.S. sergeant receives between uh, 2,600 and 3,700 a month. So using the market exchange rate, right, not really comparable, but nowhere near that uh, 1.2 level that Robertson uses. I think it's closer to about 2.6. And again, that is for the personnel. If we're talking about a war between the United States and China, it's in the air, it's on the sea, it's between systems. Small differences in these systems are going to make the difference between success and failure uh, and life and death. Fred, did you win in on this, or can I go back to no, the audience? Ahead. Great. Let's go to the audience again. Um, let's take two. Let's take the gentleman over there and split the field, the gentleman over there as well. I am uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Presumably, this entire exercise is being conducted in both the CIA and DIA uh, with information inputs far in excess of what you guys have, including intercepted budget documents and so forth. So what's the point of you guys chasing down this thing when, in fact, the real data, uh, which goes into the QDR, um, is already being done at a more professional level uh, within the clandestine services? So we've had the so what question from Eric. We've had the why bother question from the gentleman <laughs> in the sweater. And let's see if we can have another big uh, Sunday punch. Uh, uh, my name is Roger Cochetti. I'm an author and an editorial contributor to the Hill newspaper. And my question actually is sort of the exact opposite of that. I want to begin by <laughs> commending Cato and the people involved for um, attempting to deal with the imponderables of something like this because I think everybody in this room knows that this exact debate is motivating hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. expenses. How you conclude on this on this debate, and this debate is taking place in the media and in political circles um, without the information that the intelligence community has, but on information like that's provided here. So I don't think there's a subject that is more important, even recognizing that there, the, many of these are imponderable. So I want to begin with an imponderable question and then two sort of nitpicky procedural que questions. The imponderable is um, I spoke with a Chinese professor years ago about this similar subject. And his point to me, speaking for himself, was that um, you, what you need to understand is that your goal is to be the dominant military force on every square inch of the Earth's surface. So go for it. Spend yourself into oblivion. We hope you do more to militarize Terra del Fuego. That's, that's what you want. Our goal is to recreate what I will call the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. And this is ours. 
we don't have to beat you in Tierra del Fuego. We only have to beat you in East Asia. That's what we want. And we hope you'll spend, you'll attack Nicaragua and every other country in the world so you'll go broke sooner. That was his philosophy. And I'd be interested if you think that is actually a Chinese perspective. My nitpicky questions are, if I want to live in my house, I got to pay mortgage. Um, the interest expense on my mortgage is part of living in the house. Shouldn't some portion of the $400 billion a year that the United States government spends on interest expense for the national debt be allocated to the calculation? So there is no allocation of, of debt, uh, national uh, debt. And the second nitpicky question is, how do you, your numbers differ from this Swedish Institute, Spiri, whatever it is? It's, now that Sweden is a member of NATO, I don't know if they're going to continue to say we have a you know, neutral perspective on this. But how do you differ from Spiri? Thank you. So why should we bother when the intelligence community is doing this on its own? Um, it's a very important problem that we're dealing with publicly, generally, on TV and Capitol Hill, so we need to do it. And then what about interest on the debt? And how do you differ from CIPRI? A lot there. Right, Fred, do you want to kick it off and sure. I'll throw it back uh, there? I'll start with a very Cato thought, uh -oh. which is that like knowledge is local and you need to disperse and have more people looking at the same problem because they might have knowledge that you could you hadn't considered before it, you shouldn't just trust the authority I, I think that that's written here somewhere right it is i have a tattoo <laughs> yeah sure and, and uh, i do hope that uh dai and cia are doing that work and and i hope that they are doing it differently as well i hope that they have different methodologies and that was uh, there's a great book about the u.s estimating soviet defense budget that was based on that the difference in the political argument between the different intelligence agencies. I hope that they have different perspectives, and I, I hope that they are fighting behind closed doors and in, in uh, uh, dark skiffs. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the public shouldn't know about this as well. That that there shouldn't be a public uh, a broader understanding of how the, the Chinese defense budget is composed, what are the differences, what are the problems that we see. Uh, so I think that there is room for all, all of that and, and that there is an, an exclusive uh, grant of knowledge. Um, a, a quick comment on the, the regional aspect of it. Yeah, that's how regional powers think. Like you just need to win within your area. And that's a challenge for a country that has global interests like ours. Uh, we need to engage in multiple different uh, places in very different ways as well. And I think that the bigger area that we are following, following very short in great power competition is being present economically. It's easy for the U.S. to, to ban Huawei from here. But the problems that led to that ban exist all around the world. So what are you going to do when the most cell, the, the biggest selling cell phone in Latin America is a Huawei and the second one is a Redmi? That, that's the real problem that, that you have that. And you're not going to solve that with military. Like that, that's a, a broader question. Are concluding thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, I, the, those are terrific answers and I fully concur with them. Uh, you know, uh, again, I too hope CIA and DIA are doing this. I'm confident that they are doing it. Um, uh, I would guess that the fact that the uh, China military power report this year came out with a figure of 260 billion, which is pretty close to the official budget converted by MER, means that they've sort of moved away from methodologies that are more heavily reliant on uh, PPP, which I think they used to be closer to at least in the case of DIA, which did actually publish some, un, some, some official, some, some non-classified data. So uh, enough said on that point. Um, on the national debt, yes, I, I think there are accountings of, of all military-related spending, which do include this. I've kind of forgotten how big that figure is, if you think about interest on the defense-related portion of national it? debt. It might have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think something like $130 billion. 
So if you wanted to add that in, you could. No, you had a note that you didn't add. Okay. No, no, we did. I did not, yes. but you could. But you cost it ever. Now, I, I, it does raise a larger question, which is when you're picking categories, uh, would you want to sort of confine yourself to items that sort of contribute directly to generating military power or new military power? So you might not, on those grounds, uh, include that category. At the, by the same token, though, you might also want to, uh, uh, want to give another look at certain categories which are commonly included in Chinese military spending, like portions of the R&D, even if it's dual use, in industries where um, the US can simply leverage commercially available technologies, and China has to sort of build from scratch if it wants to produce. Um, so, you know, I think there is a larger set of, uh, of questions there. I think we're run pretty well yeah, out of time, um, but fine. thanks. That, those were great questions and I, a terrific discussion. I think on this final question, right, the, the idea that, um, um, you know, we're trying to do things in many different quarters of the world, whereas China is very much more focused. I think that the implications of this a little bit already and going forward are going to be that, you know, at, at its essence, strategy is about choice. And I think that the permissive context in which the United States has found itself in the unipolar kind of era really eliminated the need for choice and with it that impetus towards strategy. And I think that, you know, the, the kinds of transformations that are happening in the Asia Pacific and with respect to the U.S.-China balance are causing not just CIA and DIA to fight about their estimates of China, but are causing Europe people to fight with China people to fight with Middle East people about how to prioritize and how to make those kinds of choices. And I, you know, this is at once kind of a lamentable thing, right? It's nice to be the unipolar power. It's nice to be uh, uh, the biggest, meanest dog on the block and to be able to do more of everything. But at the same time, from the point of view of strategy, um, feeling pressure can be a good thing and feeling the need to choose can be a good thing. And I hope that that uh, helps us to clarify the need to haves from the like to haves from the would be nice to haves in the future going forward. So with that, let me thank everybody online, everybody in person. And for the people in person, I'm pretty sure we have turkey sandwiches or something outside. Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it.